Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. We've been looking at the 10 fetters, experiential factors that keep us from higher spiritual attainments, particularly awakening. We've seen the progress prior to awakening is achieved by progressively weakening, then losing the first five of the fetters, which we discussed last week. Self-identity view, doubt, attachment to norms and observances, sensual desire, and ill will. Finally, awakening requires losing the final five fetters, which we'll take up today. The sixth fetter and the seventh fetter are desire for material and desire for immaterial existence. Eliminating the final five fetters is the achievement of the arahant. If we are non-returners, then, having given up passions of the senses, we still hang on to existence, to being somebody, to having a self-existence. This is the topic of these two fetters, which distinguish themselves cosmologically or psychologically. The first seeks existence as a form, that is, with a body, in the human, or in one of the lower deity realms. The second seeks a higher formless existence, that is, one of mind only, in one of the higher deity realms. At this point, we give up both aspirations. We've already recognized with the loss of the first fetter that such existence is not really substantial. Now we go one step further and actually give up our attachment to whomever we continue to imagine we have become or aspire to become. Nonetheless, the self still hangs on by a thread. The eighth fetter is conceit. This fetter is tied up with the sense of self still running on fumes. Often the elimination of this is equated with awakening itself or its order among the feathers suggests it is very close to being right. A group of monks in one of the discourses suspects that an ill monk, Kemaka, might already be an arahant, and they ask him whether he regards any of the five aggregates of attachment, form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness, as this is mine, this am I, and this is myself, as a test. Kamika asserts that he does not, but that he nonetheless is not an arahant. He explains as follows. Just as, friends, there is smell in a blue or red or white lotus, whoever says that the smell comes from the petal or from the color or from the filament 
Is he speaking rightly? No, friend. Then how can one explain it rightly? One has to say that it is the smell of the flower. That is all one can say about it. Even so, friend, I do not see any of the aggregates as myself. However, there is in me a subtle conceit as I am. Nonetheless, once Kemaka would lose the smell of conceit, he would, it seems, still have two fetters to go. The ninth fetter is restlessness. Fidgeting, indeed a problem for the beginning meditator, but long abandoned by one about to attain awakening, is clearly not meant here as restlessness, but rather the subtle feeling that there is something better over there or waiting just in the future. This is an insidious addiction to the promise of other better circumstances, very different to shake off. Ajahn Chah once said brilliantly, A monk has no future. This describes a person who has completely abandoned restlessness and is perfectly and absolutely at all times content in the here and now with nothing better to look forward to ever. For such a one, it is never greener on the other side of the fence. The tenth and final fetter is ignorance. Once the last vestiges of ignorance go, everything goes. The entire chain of dependent co-arising collapses. The snarl is disentangled. We no longer believe formations. We no longer believe in the world that consciousness has been painting for us. We no longer believe in whatever is conditioned in a self in life and death. The darkness is lifted. We're able to shine the light of wisdom in all the dark corners of the mind, dwelling in the unconditioned, in the deathless, in Nibbana. Bhikkhus, there are these four radiances, the radiance of the moon, the radiance of the sun, the radiance of fire, the radiance of wisdom. Bhikkhus, among these four, the radiance of wisdom is indeed the most excellent. The Practice Toward Awakening The Buddha described his teachings as against the stream. They make little sense to the common worldling until they are directly encountered and experienced. Renouncing sensual pleasures in favor of what exactly? This is no less true of Nibbana, which on first description must seem hardly more appealing than bungee jumping or swallowing goldfish. Ending existence and rebirth? In favor of what exactly? The world is nothing like what we start out supposing it to be. At each step, we proceed anew with trust that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. Only in retrospect, seeing that he indeed did. We cannot see Nibbana with the Buddha's eyes until we reach Nibbana ourselves and acquire his way of seeing. In a favorite story from the suttas, 
Venerable Badika Kaligoda was often heard by other monks to exclaim, What bliss! What bliss! Since he had, as a layman, been a king, they did not assume that he was enjoying the delights of the renunciate life, but rather that he was reminiscing about his previous cushy life. Upon word of this, the Buddha summoned Venerable Bhaddiya and discovered that the monks were underestimating his stage of insight. This is what Venerable Bhaddiya's had to say. Before, Before, when I was was a householder maintaining the bliss of kingship, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside, But even though I was thus guarded, thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distressful, and afraid. But now, on going alone to a forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty dwelling, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, unconcerned, unruffled, my wants satisfied, with my mind like a wild deer. This is the meaning I have in mind that I repeatedly exclaim, What bliss! What bliss! What Venerable Bhaddiya had left behind is not so different from the lives most of us live, with an asset-laden personal footprint protected by high-tech security system and with a financial advisor. We generally don't like or understand, initially, the idea of giving up sensual pleasures nor fame and gain. But consider how much we gave up in the process of growing up. Toys and games and certain interpersonal concerns that one year seemed so alluring, but the next year had so little appeal. All of the sentiments of samsaric existence are one by one similarly shed in the process of completing at long last the process of growing up. The toys and games and interpersonal concerns are themselves in the end without appeal. Notice that even our greatest pleasures or those things that we have longed for the longest, if indulged in to excess, become stale than tedious, than irritating. There are those among us, the foolishly glamorous, who are known for their sensual indulgences and idolized by the masses. But few of them lead happy lives. Instead, they frequently turn to drug or alcohol addiction, which in turn turns to despair and often even suicide. Worldly pleasures are not what we take them to be at first. They break their promises. It's only with a great deal of trust, courage, and resolve that we enter the stream. But the path inclines toward Nibbana, and as we practice the path diligently, we will make progress, albeit gradually, in that direction. There are these gross impurities in gold, dirty sand, gravel and grit, the dirt washer or his apprentice, having placed it in a vat, washes it again and again 
until he has washed them away. When he is rid of them, there remain the moderate impurities in the gold, coarse sand and fine grit. He washes the gold again and again until he has washed them away. When he is rid of them, there remain the fine impurities in the gold, fine sand and black dust. The dirt washer or his apprentice washes the gold again and again until he has washed them away. When he is rid of them, there remains just the gold dust. The goldsmith or his apprentice, having placed it in a crucible, blows on it again and again to blow away the dross. The gold, as long as it has not been blown on again and again to the point where the impurities are blown away, as long as it is not refined and free from dross, it is not pliant, malleable, or luminous. It is brittle and not ready to be worked. But there comes a time when the goldsmith or his apprentice has blown on the gold again and again until the dross is blown away. The gold having been blown on again and again to the point where the impurities are blown away is then refined, free from dross, pliant, malleable, and luminous. It is not brittle, and it is ready to be worked. Then, whatever sort of ornament he has in mind whether a belt, an earring, a necklace, or a gold chain, the gold would serve his purpose. In the same way, there are those gross impurities in a monk intent on heightened mind, misconduct in body, speech, and mind. These the monk, aware and able by nature, abandons, destroys, dispels, wipes out of existence. When he is rid of them, there remain in him the moderate impurities, thoughts of sensuality, ill will, and harmfulness. These he abandons, destroys, dispels, wipes out of existence. When he is rid of them, there remain in him the fine impurities, thoughts of his caste, thoughts of his home district, thoughts related to not wanting to be despised. These he abandons, destroys, dispels, wipes out of existence. When he is rid of them, there remain only thoughts of the Dhamma. His concentration is neither calm nor refined and has not yet attained serenity or unity. It is kept in place by the fabrication of forceful restraint. But there comes a time when his mind grows steady inwardly, settles down, grows unified and concentrated. His concentration is calm and refined, has attained serenity and unity, and is no longer kept in place by the fabrication of forceful restraint. And then, whichever of the higher knowledges he turns his mind to know and realize, he can witness them for himself whenever there is an opening. The Buddhist practitioner enters a stream that leads to far greater rewarding and reliable pleasures. This begins, and for the most part is sustained, 
quite remarkably, with the satisfaction in giving, in harmlessness, in bringing benefit to the world. It continues as the mind becomes purified of craving and as suffering recedes. Building on a foundation of refuge in virtue, it is found in the utter stillness of concentration and increasingly in the gaps that open up in not having to worry about this or that. This bliss seems to arise naturally just by making room for it. Oddly, the greatest happiness does not seem to be a feeling at all. By completely transcending the base of neither perception nor non-perception, the bhikkhu enters in and dwells in the cessation of perception and feeling. This is that other kind of happiness more excellent and sublime than the previous kind of happiness. It seems that the absence of suffering makes room for this sublime happiness. Nothing more needs to be done. Those who have attained Nibbana consistently report an abiding feeling of bliss. It is the bliss of serenity, the bliss that arrives as suffering departs, the bliss of settling in with things as they are and of not seeing them as personal problems the bliss of renunciation, of no personal stake that abides by its own accord, that will not and cannot depart. Final awakening comes with the disentanglement of our conditionality, to realize and abide in the unconditioned, unfettered, needing nothing, no longer existing in the conventional way as a separate self. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire or inclination. There being no desire or inclination, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor a between the two. This, just this, is the end of suffering. What is needed to be done has been done. This is transcendence, the end of worldly existence that mystics of other traditions speak of. However, it is not suddenly to leave this world for another it is the gradual realization that this world is not what we thought and never was. With practice, the world as we know it fades away. There is, monks, an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an unconditioned. If, monks, there were no unborn, no unbecome, no unmade, no unconditioned, then no escape would be discerned from what is born, become, made, conditioned. But because there is an unborn, an unbecome, an unmade, an unconditioned, therefore an escape is discerned from what is born, become, made, conditioned. 
And with this, we conclude our series of podcasts on the Buddhist path.